My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation, and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Jeff Lieberman. Jeff is the co-founder of Sleep Awake Camp. Sleep Awake, a a play on the the classic Sleep Awake Camp. Sleep Awake is a boot camp for the body, heart, and mind. It's for people ages 18 to 27 who are ready to learn all of the things that are never taught in school. We spend something, some insane amount of hours in school, something like 20,000 hours in school. And we never learn things like conflict resolution or emotional regulation or mindful communication or how to be safely in places of pleasure and sexuality and how to build friendships and relationships and intimacy that go beyond just the physical and so much more. So Jeff, along with his co-founder, Kat, who was my guest back on episode 98 of The Wonder Dome, uh, about two or three months before they did their first iteration of Sleepawake Camp. Uh, last August. Now Jeff is coming on and they've run it for a year. It was amazingly successful. At the end of this conversation, you're going to be like, can I come? (laughs) Or at least there's a good chance that you're going to want to come to this. An incredible impact on young people who are carrying all sorts of, uh, many of the traumas that that we all carry from this modern society of ours that by virtue of both its conscious design and many of its kind of unconscious after effects, we find ourselves isolated, feeling lonely, depressed, anxious, cut off from the planet Earth, cut off from each other. And, uh, and in many cases, rationalizing that to say that all of that stuff is hippy dippy and woo woo and we don't need any of that. Like all of this comes together to produce pretty scary upticks in, uh, individual and collective depression and heartache and loneliness and loss. So sleep awake camp is a, a, what sounds to me like a really powerful container for young people who are carrying this sense that something's missing from our culture and from life that are, that are maybe looking around going, is this it? And sleep awake says, no, this is far from it. There's so much more if you're ready and you can, access that much more fully and deeply in a community staffed with people who have devoted their lives to human development. And Jeff is absolutely one of those people. He, he straddles two dimensions, inspiring, uh, using art to inspire wonder and awe. So, you know, the Wonder Dome, this is a place for that. And also working to deepen well-being in individuals and collectively. And the Wonder Dome is all about that too. He uh, 
has received four degrees in physics, math, um, MEC-E in robotics from MIT. He hosted Time Warp on the Discovery Channel about the wonders of science, and he's made large-scale art for 15 years. You know, this kind of stuff where you walk into a building and art towers over you. That's the kind of art that, that Jeff Mates. And he speaks to all the ways in which, despite all of that cool by outward appearances, life should have been perfect and magical. He speaks to the the decade plus of depression that he navigated and all the ways in which he was seeking to get his needs met unconsciously through this outward achievement. And so over the past 15 years, he's really been training in meditation and personal development and group dynamics for well-being uh, to bring his wisdom and insight, to create spaces where others can tap into their own wisdom and insight. And it seems to me that that comes to life most fully in this offering, Sleep Awake Camp, which this year runs from June 17th to July 16th, 2023. So if you're hearing this before then, you can go to sleepawake, sleepawake.camp and submit an application if you're between the ages of 18 and 27 and are longing for that kind of depth and connection to life, to your sense of purpose and well-being and to others around you. And even if you're hearing this 10 years from now, I hope you have some sense that you're not alone, that there are others, many others who are asking the question, is this all there is? And finding the answer to be no, there's so much more. So let's get settled in (sighs) and hear what Jeff has for us. Jeff, hello, welcome. Thanks so much, Andy, for having me. It's good yeah, to see you. yeah, man. Uh, we're here because Kat, your colleague and co-founder of Sleep Awake Camp, uh, who came into the Wonder Dome, don't precisely remember when it was, but it was before last August when you launched the first iteration of Sleep Awake Camp, and we had just such a great conversation, which I'm not surprised about because Kat's amazing. And she said, okay, we're doing it again. And now you got to talk to Jeff. And I said, I can do that because Jeff seems like a pretty fascinating, fascinating cat. So here we are. Yeah, well, she's a pretty fascinating and unique individual as well. Um, she's a fascinating yeah. cat, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the most fascinating cats I've ever met. Um, yeah, and now we actually aren't just talking about a theory. Now we actually like lived an experience and it's obviously a very different thing. So yeah, yeah, really excited to get into wherever, wherever the road takes us. Great. Uh, I, I want to start with uh, the fact that I, you and I and Kat were briefly together for, you know, a span of, well, we were in the same room for a longer period of time, but for like a span of a few minutes walking into the lunchroom at this conference that we were all at last October. And it was maybe two or three months after you had had the first camp and the first time you two were seeing each other again in person after that intense time. Mm-hmm. And like my primary experience of the two of you were just like, you were both just sort of glowing and vibrating with joy. And uh, I was like, are they smoking something? Because they really <laughs> like, wow, they seem really happy. <laughs> it's a common thing. I mean, it's, if you watch some of the videos of campers on our site, it's like the first thing you're going to say is what, what are they on? You know, <laughs> but, but what they're on is oxytocin. You know, they're yeah. on a type of connection that they didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Mm. And it's like, a, you know, as we were, we're kind of talking around before, like, that seems to be a, a deep yearning that human beings have and, and maybe don't even remember is a possible yearning to be met in anymore. And that's yeah. one of the things that led me to care so much about this project. Hmm. I, I, so what you just said I, I feels like the like part of what we might explore today. And there's some threads I want to hmm. start to unspool around this yearning or longing and also this way in which despite its absence, arguably it's arguable absence from a lot of corners of our culture. Like all of us can access the kind of connection that you're describing. And, and a part of me wants to start with kind of the, the physiology of it. You know, you talked about oxytocin, which some people might know what it is, but maybe some won't like there's something that happens in our bodies when, when we come together, people to people, and maybe mm-hmm. you could just sort of talk, talk about that in whatever way you want to talk about that. And then we can sort of, weave in what act like how you how you create those kinds of connections yeah oxytocin is is some people call it the bonding chemical you know we have dopamine we have oxytocin we have all these different uh, serotonin channels that mediate different feelings and oxytocin is originally what arises when the mom is breastfeeding and it's this deep bonding chemical that actually encourages the bond in both directions and actually says ah this is me in some way and you know, we feel that as adults more and more rarely, potentially, where we feel subsumed into a unity of something larger than ourselves. And some of us feel it during lovemaking or during, during certain rituals or religious experiences. Um, but, you know, when you look at a baby, it hasn't even really separated itself yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's very easy for it to get into that flow of chemicals and be utterly one with the universe. There's just the flow of milk in that case. There's not even like a separate baby drinking. Uh, that takes a long time to actually form as a cognitive structure in yourself. So, you know, w- the way I look at it is we used to, by by utter need, be entirely interdependent on each other. You know, when we were in tribal cultures, hunter-gatherer cultures, we, on a daily basis, based on the scarcity of the environment and based on our our needs from each other, we're interdependent. And, and so I, as far as I can tell, and as far as the sources that I've read, that deep sense of interconnected being was present all the time. You know, we hadn't become this modern person who gets an apartment in a city and lives by themselves and once in a while sees the strangers at the supermarket. And even the idea of a stranger is a modern invention. Mm -hmm. Because when you're in a tribe, like the only strangers are the, the people that you're at war with or, you know, in some kind of direct conflict with. And the fact that we regularly walk by people that we don't know is is actually quite a recent invention. And when you look at it with a lens of like an anthropological lens or a scientific lens, like it's very disorienting mm-hmm. to take for granted that you don't know your community. It's very modern and it's very disorienting. And so, you know, I, it pulls me a lot because when you look at the statistics on isolation and loneliness and downstream of that depression and anxiety and stress, um, it's, it's growing the way that you'd you would typically want like a startup to grow, but this is not something that we want to grow. It's actually accelerating. And I've looked and I've, you know, I was a mathematician. I've looked at the numbers and I've been extrapolating and it's, it's looking really dangerous for our culture, the way that we're getting so disconnected. Um, So there's, it's, it's, as you said, it's incredibly rich territory, but it, it bears repeating, you know, this, this, this yearning that we have that we might be so distant from in our own lives um, can be met 
And it's a yearning that is actually a really natural, deep, old yearning from being a social mm-hmm. mammal that was fundamentally interconnected and interdependent. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I'm noticing like a couple threads of thought here. I mean, one thing to just really like a part of me just wants to underline how I understand this, this evolutionary through line that you're pointing to, which we could arguably trace. I mean, not arguably anyone. The, my sense is that our understanding of evolution takes us all the way back to the mammals who lived in the shadows of, of, you know, other much larger species like the dinosaurs until this extinction event came along and wiped out the creatures that ruled this planet. And suddenly these little vertebrate mammals scurrying around in the dirt who likely survived both living around dinosaurs and living through the catastrophe of an extinction event by like being social, by having little bonds to take care of each other because they couldn't thunder across the, you know, through the jungle, like, you know, they were just very, very uh, tiny. And, mm-hmm. you know, so like that, those, that's our heritage that we then unspool over millions and millions of years to the point where, where we have, you know, uh, a variety of upright mammals who would look a lot like we look right now, Neanderthalus, you know, Homo erectus, like all of these who were like, wow, look at this, look at this incredible of diversity and abundance and and now, like, we're kind of what you're describing when you describe this, this exponential increase in loneliness and depression. Like, in my mind, I, I see alongside that, like, an exponential decrease in diversity and connection to the land and a sense of the deep lineage that we're a part of. Like, all of these things have been pared away from our identities down to this sort of nub of you know, I'm an individual who needs to make a living. And if I don't like, I'm going to, that's really bad. So let me just make some money and get a shelter and a place to live. And it's like, you know, wonder it's so depressing. (laughs) Like, you know, there's a narrative that can be quite depressing and it feels like that's what you're pointing to. But then the flip side is that you and I, or any of us could walk into a room as strangers again, this modern invention. And if we want to, if we're open to it, feel that connection with each other almost instantaneously. Like there's some magic in despite all of the efforts, conscious and unconscious that have been put into place to put us into our apartments <laughs> and and make us strangers to each other that we can connect really quickly. Uh, we have, mm. we've not, we have not overwritten that capacity. I think that's yeah, not over, not overwritten it, but maybe made it a lot more challenging. I mean, I think the fact that, for example, me and me and you might have an easy time connecting would be through some training, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not the default and the Mm. default seems to be, I have a certain set of rules of how I think I should be in relationship with people. So I'm going to hold my cards around the other stuff, which is usually the actual authentic vulnerable stuff that will lead to connection. But I'm holding all that back, following my rules. And this other person I'm talking to is following their rules. And we're either trying to like one up each other on our achievements or something. And this, this is all the rules that we learn through culture that keep us from connection. Mm. And I, I don't know your, enough about your path, but for me, it actually took, it took doing some, some work to actually see all the ways I was actually prohibiting myself from deeper connection. Cause I had to say the scary thing in relationship to be connected. I had to say the thing that, that wasn't the role I was playing. And, and that I think is eminently possible, but it's part of this cultural shift that it's, it's not automatic anymore. 
Yeah. Now, okay, so that's really, really appreciate you saying that. And I wonder what's your, there's a place where the longing meets the rules, where uh, I have developed a, you know, I live in New England. Uh, There's a sort of stereotype about what we might call like, you know, the New Englander, sort of the, the white New Englander who kind of like keeps to themselves is very stoic, you know, like ascribes to certain kind of work ethic, uh, you know, and we could come up with all sorts of other stereotypes, but I'm just sort of sketching that as a loose one as an example. And so I, I hear a lot of people say, oh gosh, yeah, New England is like cold literally in the winter, but also people are kind of cold in New England. Like I love California. You know, like that's a very common refrain. And I know I'm speaking to someone who lives on both coasts. So you maybe can relate to this, you know? So, so if we just take like my, like any one of my proverbial neighbors who is running their kind of New England script, which is much more complex than I'm making it out Mm -hmm. to be, but like Mm -hmm. they're running that script and Jeff, Jeff walks down the street and Jeff is like, let's connect. They're, (laughs) They're like, no. <laughs> Back off, weirdo. Back yeah, exactly. off. Right? So the rules, weirdo? the rules say like you don't do that, Jeff. Don't do that. That's weird. That's dangerous. That's threatening. That's not normal. But 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 somewhere in there, some I believe, or maybe I'll speak for myself, somewhere in me, and, and you sort of said this too, somewhere in you was parts of you that were longing for Jeff, the Jeff to walk up and be like, hey man, I see you. Like, hey, mm. you don't have yeah. to do all this, that this whole thing that you're doing. It's cool and all, but like you could not do that if you wanted to. You know, there's something mm-hmm. about that invitation that that I feel like many of us are desperate for. And maybe that connects yeah. to that that exponential increase you're seeing in, in depression and stuff. So maybe could you just speak about that, where those two places intersect? This is a super rich, super rich. I'm going to try to back out again and, and kind of give a little context about what you're saying. Um, one of the lenses that I hold around evolution is that every step we take forward has unforeseeable side effects. And that usually the next phase of evolution is to try to deal with the paradoxes that arise from those side effects. So for example, like going into modern culture from a tribal culture was always because we were trying to have more food saved up and Mm. more safety. And these are amazing things, right? Because we were in an environment of scarcity. And so, yes, you want to build ceramics so that you can store grains and you want to start farming so you can have plenty around when when the weather isn't nice. And, you know, so these are amazing technologies and they serve us really well. But now we're actually in a place where, you know, for for the, you know, a very large fraction of humans on the planet right now, uh, scarcity isn't the main challenge. I'm not I'm not devaluing that scarcity is a huge challenge for probably half of the world right now. Um But for the modern world, that's not the challenge. The challenge is actually non-scarcity. What does a human being do when there's an infinite amount of ice cream around? (laughs) Which is not a problem that we ever had before. So all our sensors that say, yes, when there's a sweet thing, eat it because it's good. That actually served us really well 10,000 years ago because there was no ice cream. Mm -hmm. And now you have the same body and the same sensor system that lived in scarcity trying to survive in the modern world where you can go to the supermarket and for $2 get 3000 calories. And so now you're seeing the side effects of that. And so the side effects are on our bodily health, the side effects of things like education and and different kinds of social inculcation is that the mind doesn't stop anymore. 
You know, the mind used to be a very, very functional tool that would start thinking about something when there was uncertainty. And then we would solve that uncertainty and we go right back to beingness, mm-hmm. just actually being. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at it, it's one of the reasons we love babies and we love dogs is because they're, they're just being. And we feel that and it actually transmutes in us to a, whoa. And, and you know, you're, you're the Wonder Dome podcast, right? It's like, it's, it's that sense of wonder and simplicity and awe. And it's not a thinking kind of wonder. It's 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 the wonder that's behind the thinking that might arise that's wondrous thinking of just the, the actual miracle of our existence in the first place. So, okay, so that's the context. Now, one of the threads that you're pointing to is around the ways that people hold themselves. And what I always feel like is really important to, to talk about when we talk about the ways that people hold is that when we hold... We hold because at a certain point in our life, it was the most skillful thing to do in our environment. Mm. And for example, if I'm in an unsafe environment and and my family is not okay with me getting angry when I'm three years old, then I will learn in my nervous system, never get angry because I'll try getting angry and I'll get some kind of punishment or detachment or something. And before I have any kind of conceptual mind, I'll learn, do not go in that direction, Mm. repress your anger. Mm. And that's actually Mm. really skillful. I'm in a place that cannot hold that energy from me. But this feels really important is that it's pre, it's kind of pre-concept. It's like this, there's some, if we're, if we were to use the word instinct, like some animals have the instinct to build a nest or to, you know, travel from point A to point B or to seek out water. And it's if what I'm hearing describing is that like, we could say that humans have this instinct to, to understand what's safe, to understand, to behave, to find the way to behave in the context, mm-hmm. whatever that context is. And then, then our nervous system will adapt to that quite quickly, even though we don't necessarily have the thinking mind up and running going, Hmm, my, it does not appear to be safe to be angry here. Don't be angry. It's just like, it's just happening. It's happening. Right? It's happening. And the way that you you find out it's happening is if you're in therapy or if you're in an environment that actually tries to help you heal through that, you know, you might have to open back into those feelings that have been held in and you'll see immediately how your nervous system responds by saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be isolated. I'm going to be abandoned. And you, you'll start flushing with sweat. And, and your nervous system will go into exactly the reaction that it learned when you were three years old, four years old, um, with no concepts, just because you started moving in the direction of the thing that used to get punished or abandoned. And that's so smart. Like, you know, Thomas Hubel, one of a mentor that both of us have had, has has said, you know, you have to treat these defense mechanisms as your childhood heroes. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, because if you can start looking at your tendencies, like for me, a, a huge historical tendency that is still one of my defaults when I get stressed is dissociation, the freeze response. I don't tend to go into fight response, you know, so you get, you get to choose based on your family of origin, if you're going to fight, flight or freeze or fawn, you know, and so I go into that freeze response and it was a huge shift in my own development to realize that saved me. Mm-hmm. How lucky am I? It makes me want to cry. How lucky am I that I could have dissociated when things felt too overwhelming and unsafe? How horrible would it have been if I couldn't have done that? That changes your whole relationship with your defense mechanisms and, and the systems that have learned to keep you stable from, from being overwhelmed, your coping strategies. So 
And, and just to, obviously there's a million places to go here, but I just want to tie it into the New Englander thing that you talked about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a place that we get when a lot of people in New England have a lot of people in the modern world in general, but let's just point to that environment. They haven't been in environments where it was held for them to be fully fluid and with their difficult emotions. And so they're actually being very skillful by holding that in mm-hmm. because they they have found a coping strategy that has worked well to some degree well, you know, as I said, depression is increasing, but this is their best kind of local solution to the problem. And I would never walk up to someone and be like, Hey, you could just be free. Come on, be free. Because actually they might not be in a situation that can support that, Yeah, you know? And yeah. and just because mm-hmm. one guy comes mm-hmm. around and says, Hey, come on, be free. It's not mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. going to make their nervous system trust that. So, so yeah. I, yeah, so they're, they're being really skillful in that sense until they start to find environments that actually can support the depth of their pain and the depth of their sense of disconnection. And then that will thaw itself back into a deeper connection. Mm-hmm. And thank you for that. Thank you for unpacking that and appreciating. I mean, there is actually a part of me that wishes I could just run around and like shake people and be like, it's so much better than this. Or so, you know, there's some, there's some longing I have as well. So maybe I'll just own that. Mm. Um, but, but really appreciate you saying like that that's actually can be quite destructive and threatening and, and counterproductive that there's a sort of, in the same way that the body naturally learns how to disassociate or how to, to, to fight or, you know, to submit or whatever the sort of learned behavior is naturally, we also need to create environments where the body can learn fully that, that it can do other things. And that needs to, it needs to like learn that in response to a real environmental stimuli, not just some idea about whatever yeah. enlightenment or emotional awareness or whatever we could point to. So yeah. And that, one of the, right? totally. And one of the things that I'm, I'm, it's very ironic to say this at this point, but it's like, I'm so thankful for having had deep depression when I was a teenager, when I was about 15, I started going into a pretty deep depression, it took about 10 or 15 years to start to actually come out of. Wow. And I wouldn't be working on camp or anything without that. Um, one of the deepest gifts of that depression and you know, I speak about this, having had it, not as like, let me just talk about some abstract thing is there's a lot of motivation to get to the bottom of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And when someone's just kind of medium able to, to get through society or whatever, you just tend to kind of find what works and live in this grayscale place and just like choose your coping strategies and, and go with them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was not going to work for me. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely painful to spend 15 years trying to figure out my way through it. Yeah. But now that I have, it, it isn't a gray thing. It's very much opened up. And, and I think actually that's one of the saddest things is to feel that people have found enough of a kind of set of coping strategies that, that they're going to sit in like a medium mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually, you know, to, to point to the kind of people on the street, that longing that you were pointing to, like, the more I do work on myself and the more I find how under all those things that I've learned from culture and from family, that, that there's just this like unbounded joy that keeps opening up. It's not that it's just like, I found it and I'm done. It's like actually keeps growing. Uh, The more there's heartbreak 
in seeing what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so every couple of months, I notice myself just being on the street at some point and seeing the, the average person walking on the street and just crying and just falling into like, this is actually what's going on for billions of people is this belief that mm-hmm. where they are is w- what it is and you're just stuck. And I think that grieving is actually a really important part of the process of, of growing into your own deeper joys to see that not only is this the state of things, but people don't know there's any way through it. And because of that belief, they're not going to get through it sometimes. And to actually feel the heartbreak of like a lot of people don't make it into happiness. And that's just really, you know, even now I just feel the heaviness in my whole body. Every time I let myself feel a wave of that, it kind of washes through and, and it, it crystallizes my own sense of purpose, my own sense of, uh, clarity of how I'm going to spend my attention and energy. Um, but only by being in tune with that kind of pain. Mm. Wow. Maybe you could say more about, uh, how you might describe that crystallization of, of attention and energy, just both for yourself as a human walking the earth and, and, and also like the places like sleep awake, what I, I don't know if that's all you're doing, but like, the sort of offerings that you bring to the world. You know, mm. What is it when you feel that heaviness and you notice like, wow, this is true that our, uh, our culture for all its, uh, all its material abundance is, is deeply malnourished. Um, when you notice that true, it crystallizes your energy and attention, your sense of purpose. In what way does it crystallize it? Or, or how would you, how would you describe that? How are you moving? How how does your movement change as a result of that awareness? Yeah, I love that question because it 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 makes me want to back up like 20 years, you know. And when I look at myself in my 20s, I'm 45 now. Um, I didn't know this at all, but a lot of the things I was doing were covertly trying to fill the hole in myself. Mm. And I think that's actually, if someone's honest with themselves, I think it's true a lot of the time, or at least fractionally true all the time. And <laughs> You know, when you're operating at a at a real deficit of a sense of you know self love and a sense of internal joy and just kind of like the self cauldron is just running, you know, you're sourced. Um, then you're going to covertly try to get get things from the world to fill that, you know. And so when I, I was an artist for you know 15 or 20 years doing uh, kinetic sculptures, large scale kinetic sculptures, and a lot of especially the early years of that. I didn't see this at all, but it was, it was all to make it feel like I was a special person on this planet. And mm-hmm. if someone wasn't connecting with me and I felt disconnected, well, then maybe they'll see this work and they'll be so moved by this work that then suddenly I'll have this quality mm-hmm. in their life and they'll want to connect with me. Mm-hmm. And this sense of like, I'm not enough as I am. And so X, Y, and Z will make me enough in these relationships is just permeating so much of our culture, you know, a sense of achievement, a sense of like social esteem. And, you know, you can kind of take your pick of what your own personal life is going to choose to fill that hole. It's going to be a mix of like whatever gifts you naturally have mixed with the things that you feel are missing. But for me, a lot of it was that sense of specialness and uniqueness. Like, oh, I'm really offering something that other people aren't. And that's why I deserve connection, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. I say all that to contrast, like as I started to work through the depression and actually feel all the ways that 
I wasn't letting myself feel my reality fully. It was too uncomfortable and actually started to get support to feel through all the nature of my reality and my belief systems about that I needed to hold certain feelings in and only share other ones and all the kind of tension and, and weight that that causes. That started to fill itself. And then all of a sudden, there's a source there that starts to overflow. And instead of trying to pull things in to fill that source, that love is actually pouring out naturally. And when I'm in, you know, as you said, when you, when you, when we met, like I was just high off camp, you know, we had just spent a month with, with these individuals and just watched incredible transformations. And like, it feeds itself, this like resonance of love. It's like a laser, you know, you keep bouncing it back between mirrors. And, and I, I see it even in my relationship, the more I just pour out love, the more it immediately reflects back and we both feel more and more full. And mm. so, mm. so as I started to feel that sense of sourced love and joy internally, and I'm not saying this in any kind of utopic, like I don't have challenges or anything like that. Like, let me dispel those myths, plenty of challenges. Um, that, that overflow started to naturally impact beings. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a sense of, I need to do this to, to get something myself out of it. It was actually just the automatic thing started happening on the street, you know, talking to a homeless person. It wasn't like it, it wasn't a, a plan. It was just the natural result of being in a, in a feeling of bounty. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, I sat, um, when COVID hit, I had a, a, pretty long window of, I, I had stopped working on a previous company and I came back to my house in Boston. I just spent like six months basically by myself, like, what is the next step here? And, and like really letting myself be uncomfortable with, I have no idea I'm going to sit here until something comes up. <laughs> and, and from that place, this very clear vision started to emerge clear after, after six months was like, this didn't need to be so hard for me. It didn't need to take 15 years to go from suicidal depression to a sense of joy. Actually, the things I had found out on those 15 years mostly were from banging my head and jumping around to the next place. And then the core things were actually quite straightforward. And they were about listening to the nature of your thoughts, feeling how those thoughts are connected to sensations in the body, trusting the intelligence of emotions, but not trusting the story of the emotions. Like these really basic foundational building blocks that no one had ever said. You know, and I started to get really angry that literally I had an MIT degree in quantum mechanics and I could tell you about the Schrodinger equation and no one had said anything about working with conflict, about feeling anger in my body, about dissociation, about having boundaries in relationships. Like no one had spent one minute in the 20,000 hours I had been in school oh on the things that are the most determiners of our well-being. And that's what fueled the vision. And so I, I just was literally making this thing for a previous version of myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. So there's, I, I want to hear about the thing actually, because I feel like we're, but there's, before I get there, there's one thing you just said that I want to see if we can tease apart. Mm -hmm. um, there is a version of you, a very, and, you know, from where I sit as someone who likes art, I've seen pictures and images of your art and it's quite beautiful. And you're telling a story that really makes sense to me. I can have, I have my own version of that story. And, and as you said, we probably all, we really all do whatever the 
whatever the external behavior is that's covertly trying to meet that need, as you said, whether it's about being right or being loved or achieving or being the smartest in the room or the sexiest in the room or whatever it is that we think will finally let us arrive and be welcome into the world. We're all seeking that. And for you, it was creating this kinetic art. Um, and I don't quite know what my question is, but I'm just noticing that there's a version now where you're going, oh, I've actually learned something over those 15 years and I'm going to create something else. And in a way, it is actually for me. It's for my past self. It's what I wish I had gotten, really. And I'm also going to try and give it to others. So there's just this sort of, you're not saying don't create stuff. And you're not even saying to the, the version of you that was creating stuff to get a need met, don't create stuff. But there's just this, subtle shift and I'm kind of moving my body to the side where you go now, oh, now I'm going to really create something that feels, I don't know what more true, more authentic, more useful. Pick up this thread. What, what's happening for you? Is yeah. That- and it's, it's not even deliberate. It's just a natural response from feeling okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the most mm-hmm. normal thing in the mm-hmm. world. Um, mm-hmm. you know, one of my favorite mystics in the world, Nisagadada, he said, he said, I'm just normal all of you are the weird ones, like all these thoughts and, and stories about yourself. I'm just here. It's so plain and simple. Um, and so I, I think that's what it really comes down to. Like, you know, it's, there, there, yeah, there are a lot of thoughts here. Like the, the art that I was making served for me, this kind of sense of uh, this is the way to belonging. And I think it always comes down to safety and belonging. Mm-hmm. And so anyone that's listening can just do that little thought experiment of like, what do I think I need to be or do to be safe and to, to belong? And that'll be really revealing if you're honest with yourself. Mm. Be really revealing because mm. you'll start to actually see all the threads and how they're co-opting your natural loves and your natural gifts and desires. And they're they're com- they're covertly co-opting them to serve the holes in yourself. Mm. And, you know, as I said, the gift of depression was that it never worked. You know, I didn't get lost. You know, I did TV for a while. I hosted a TV show and I could, I could see how in a different mindset, I would have spent the rest of my life trying to get bigger and bigger shows because I wouldn't have felt like it was big enough where I was getting enough love coming back. But, but at the end of the show that I did, I was like, oh, you know what? That's never going to do it. Mm. And then the, uh, after the sixth, you know, long-term relationship it was like, oh, that's not going to be the thing that solves the hole in myself. Um, so it, yeah, it requires a certain sense of honesty. And, and the weird thing about that depression is it gave me that sense of honesty. It was all distorted in its own ways. It had its own stories about everything, but but it also didn't let me kind of get stuck in one of those chapters and just like deeper, deeper, deeper in one of those themes. Mm-hmm. And so what I hear you saying now is like, to the extent that each of us might arrive in a place where where we are not covertly trying to get those needs met. And by the way, those needs of belonging and safety are needs that are are worth meeting and need to be met. Yeah, they're needs. <laughs> they're needs. <laughs> yeah. But like rather we see that we can meet them for ourselves, both both in material ways, but also in emotional, psychological, spiritual ways that they are met. You've described this kind of source, this this overflowing, this love pouring out that then just brings the love back. From that place of kind of needs being met honestly and authentically, there's then just this very natural next expression, which is like, 
fuck, this sucks that other people don't know about this and that I had to bang my head against the wall for 15 years. I'm just going to see if I can make that easier for other people. Yeah. And now it's not about you trying to covertly get some need met, at least as far as you're aware. It's about just like, of course I could help with this. So let me see if I can help with this. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's pretty natural. And And what's really amazing to me is to be really honest with myself as that continues to see it, you know, it's like, uh, people say it's like turtles all the way down or, or it's something all yeah. the way down. You know, there, I think there's like covert needs all the way down, you know, mm-hmm. like this camp mm-hmm. still continues to serve things that I haven't really healed fully in myself. Mm-hmm. And, and what we try to do, uh, what I, I think is really unique at, at this program is that we, we ask all the staff to figure out what their learning edge is right now. And instead of being the staff that comes in and I'm the yoga teacher, it's like, yes, I'm teaching yoga, but here's where I am in my own process of development and evolution. And we're going to make that explicit at camp too. Mm-hmm. So there isn't this false dichotomy of like staff and campers. It's like, no, 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 we're human beings and we're all evolving. And so, you know, I, I still have plenty of stuff I'm working through and camp becomes the laboratory for me to work through those as well at the same time everyone is. And so for me, you know, one of my big themes, at, you know, kind of in people's like core, I forget what they call it, like core story or whatever, you know, everyone has like kind of core things that are belief systems that have run their life. And, and one of mine that's run mine for a large part of my life is I'm, I'm alone in what I'm doing mm-hmm. and there isn't going to be support. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what I, one of the big things that I work on at camp and that I've been very explicit about the second year of camp is how do I set up a staff structure and be really explicit about that development so that it serves me working through that limiting belief. You know, it doesn't treat me like, oh, well, now that I'm camp director, I know how to do life. You know, it's like, no, 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 there's always, there's always an evolution, right? The tree is always growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a wild environment to be a part of, you know, and most of the staff say like, we've never, we've never been asked to do this. And it's scary as hell to actually open to this because we're, we're used to putting on a, a role. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So let's talk about camp because now we've just, I've been dancing around it, I've been, <laughs> but it's here as the elephant in the room. And I think the wonderful opportunity we have is, uh, I spoke to Kat before the first iteration. And then I saw both of you, as I mentioned shortly thereafter, and now you're doing it again. And it's not, it, it's now an idea, no, no longer just an idea. It's an, it's an actual thing that has happened that has impacted your lives, the campers lives. And yeah, it's rippling now. It's, 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 it's coming to life in a, in a real way. And from what I've heard, you know, based on some of the input you got from participants, like it was really, really impactful for these young people who just like you, but maybe sooner, you know, going, I can't believe I've been spending 20,000 hours in my life. Maybe for your campers, they're only at like 10,000 hours or 15,000 hours or whatever the number is. And no one's told me this stuff. And you're like, okay, everyone who's going to come, we're going to tell you some stuff. We're going to share it. Like, we're just going to do it. Come on, get over here. And you did it. And it was really powerful. So maybe like, tell us more about what happens in in August for that month. What What were you actually doing? And why if I'm, if I'm a person who's listening to this, why, why would I say yes to that? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so very like, you know, basics, 
Uh, it's a 30-day camp. It's a, it's like a boot camp, right? It's a residential camp. It's going to be in Colorado this year, mid-June to mid-July. We're in 2023, if you're listening to this in 2033. Um, <laughs> it's a, So it's a 30-day intensive. So you fly out there, you put your phone away, and there's basically no internet access, and you're in nature for 30 days, and you're with the staff. And it's almost like a two-to-one camper to staff ratio. It's very tons of expert staff so that you're just deeply held. And then we work through all the stuff that you could have learned in school, but that's not the way that school works right now because most of the adults actually don't know this stuff anymore. Uh, you learn everything from meditation and how to hold your concentration on what you want to pay attention to. You learn how to open up your creative voice to your fullest expression. You learn about how to more deeply connect with other people and all the blocks you've created to that connection. You learn how to set your own sense of vision and willpower you learn how to work through difficult emotions and difficult conflicts. Mm. You learn how to cook so that you can actually take care of that sense of independence, which I didn't learn until I was like 33 years old and a massive shift in my well-being. Um, you learn how to ground yourself into a deeper sense of safety in your nervous system. Um, and I'm sure I left some stuff out, but you can you can get the picture that it's a it's a very wide uh, multidimensional set of practices that are all woven together. Oh, sorry. I even left out like healthy sexuality and embodiment, which is just like, what do we get in health class? It's just this very weird, you know, so kind of not, not positive about the actual amount of joy you can feel in your life. Um, so we mix all these threads together and they all serve each other really beautifully because you can't do emotional work on your, your, your conditioning, like 12 hours a day for a month. It's just not sustainable and burn you out right away. So we do, you know, several hours of that in the mornings every day. And there's like yoga and journaling and meditation to circle that out. Then you have free time. Then you're doing creative practices in the evening. You're cooking with the other campers. Like mm. it's all serves each part serves the other part. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So that's, that's like the kind of basics of what, what it is we're doing. And yeah, as you said, when you talked to Cat, this camp didn't exist yet. We had a really good plan, but we didn't know, you know, and it was kind of like a pilot program. And uh, we were, we were overjoyed, of course, at the, at the result. I mean, people left there and, you know, three quarters of them said it was the most transformative experience of their life. Uh, we had major shifts. Some of the, some of the, maybe half the people that came had some kind of depression or anxiety and something like 70% of them had a, a statistically very significant shift in the level of anxiety or depression, uh, increased joy across the board, increased uh, willingness to have difficult conversations, increased sense of uh, empowerment, um, ending relationships that didn't work for them, but they were too afraid to end before mm -hmm. camp. Um, just like just across the board, you know, everything we could have imagined and more. And, you know, one of the things I'm I, I'm a you know scientist by heart, uh, artist and scientist, and so it was really important to me to do a data study because there's a lot of programs that feel really good. They don't actually change people's long-term integrated mm. behavior, and the integration to me is the challenge. It's kind of easy to create a cathartic, feel-good experience, but what's that person doing six months down the line? And so we did a data study that was like pre-post and then four months post, and and we saw all those shifts basically deepen over time, which meant they were learning tools. They weren't just learning, uh, you know, temporary experiences. And we even had one, one person who came in with severe depression, had like 90% of their depressive symptoms gone in a month. And, and that continued to, to deepen as time went on. And, um, and I don't want to create once again, like a false sense of people's systems are very different. Sometimes people leave and there's 
new sensitivity to the types of anxiety that they had actually been dissociating and suppressing from. And so it really is a case by case where someone's at, but you can see very clearly across the board that all these people have evolved like 10 years internally in a, in a month. And it's kind of like a lightning course. And then, and then really, you know, the, one of the main things we check about if someone should or shouldn't come is when they go back into their life, can it support the integration of this much change? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the only mm-hmm. reasons we won't allow someone to come. If we actually think it's going to be too hard for them to go home mm-hmm. after because it's such a it's such a culture shock to be to really have your eyes opened to the fullness of what your humanity is. Um, and I've said a lot, but you, you the one last thing is like what would make someone know if this was right? I think is that just from hearing the description, there's a resonance that that they've been hearing a calling that some there's something more. There's something that's not going the way that they think life should actually be. And there's like a, it might not even have clarity on what that is. There's just that sense of something's not, not right. Yeah. And most of the people that end up coming, they hear what we're doing and they're like, we've been looking for this. We didn't even know we were looking for this. This is the thing we wish existed. That's usually pretty clear. Mm. That really resonates with, with why I created this podcast, Mm. at least in part was like a real sense of my own journey of going, basically a voice in me going, is this it? Like, is this really it? Can't, this isn't it. This can't. Be. <laughs> so what is, what is in it, like reality, life, is this all there is? So that just that, and how, uh, and, I, and how much I experienced a sense of loneliness in that question, because I couldn't tell, maybe everyone around me was feeling that, or maybe no one was, but it just, there's no space where I could even ask that, felt like I could even safely ask that question. It was just like, you're lucky, Andy, you've got, you've got a house and a school and you, you know, you get good grades. So keep going. And, you know, but there are some parts of me that would come in and kind of like bust that and, and go like, no, I don't want to play this game. And, but I didn't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. So I just really appreciate like, there's something, if there's something inside of you going, is this it? Is this all there is? Something's not right. Something's missing. There might not be a lot of external validation for that, but you know, there are places where people are going, no, that's not all there is. Mm. And, and what I hear you saying is that you're saying that in a very loving way, right? Like there are ways in which we can be really critical of someone's reality. But I've heard you through this whole conversation just say like where you are is really important. And you have a lot of things that have kept you alive to get you right where you are right now. But if you're asking like something's missing, well, maybe check this out. That's what I hear you saying. Yeah. The Sagarada, the mystic I mentioned earlier, says, uh, pain is a signal to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. Like the, the calling for like deeper connection that you're pointing to is something that I think most people feel if they let themselves listen to it. But everyone's afraid to be the first person in the room to say it. Mm-hmm. because you're going to get, potentially get rejected because no one else is saying it. If you're coming to a room and everyone's like, I want deeper connection, then that's the social norm. And that's the kind of norm that we set up, right? It's like everyone yeah. knows that they're there to do this. It makes it much easier to do. Yeah. Um, but that pain is the calling that that motivates all the shift in action. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really, it's a beautiful thing that we have pain. You know, people that don't, that whose pain receptors aren't working, which happens, uh, it's very dangerous for them. Mm. Right, they get in accidents all the time because there's no warning signal that they're they're entering a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, 
I know we're coming up on our time boundary. Mm. Let me just see what else I want to say or ask you. Sure. There's something about, uh, I don't quite know what the question is, but there's something about the picture you're painting that we maybe haven't said super explicitly yet around um, community. Like, you know, we've, I feel like we've located a lot of our conversation at the level of the individual, which is like, I'm in pain. Where do I get help? And you've been on this journey and, and lots of people listening to this are in various stages of, of this journey, but the insight that you're having with sleepaway camp, which remind me again, what are the age groups? Is it like 18 to 24 or something like that? 18 to 27. Yeah. yeah. 18 to 27. So you, the insight you're having is like, yeah. well, if all of this, if we take folks who are feeling whatever they're feeling, their pain is saying, I need something different. Is this it? I need something more. If we take those folks and say, hey, we're going to be together for a month. And here's some sort of norms. Here are some like, here's some things we're going to do together. But the word together feels really important to this experiment that, um, and maybe you could just say more about this because there's like that intensive, another word for it is just community, right? Like, oh, we cook together and we play together and we work together. And it's like, well, in a way, isn't that sort of a description we could have given to, to some of our tribal ancestors who, as you described, are like in it together. So maybe mm. say more about the community piece or the together piece and how you craft for that or why that's important. Yeah, I think one of the underlying, maybe it's not often spoken, but one of the underlying healing factors in therapy, like one-on-one therapy, is that is that you're in relationship with somebody and you're being met in a way that you may not have been met before. And that allows the kind of back pressure of unmet things to come out as you feel safe and actually be met and remap those relational dynamics. And, and so much of our hurt was formed in relations, you know, in relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, some people might want to go into a cave and meditate their way through that, but you actually won't get through the relational dynamics. Mm-hmm. You know, I had one teacher who said, uh, the guy who meditates in the cave won't come see me as, as a therapist, but, but for sure his partner's going to come want to see me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because uh-huh. it just doesn't work through that stuff. You cannot internally work through relational issues and they need to get remapped in relationships. And one of the beautiful things that happens is when you have a community, especially large enough that it starts to feel the way that a tribal community feels, you know, you have a group identity, not just an individual one-on-one relationships, is that you start to see people taking really deep risks with their openness and really you can feel the nervousness that they'll have when they're about to express their truth and then they get met in a way that they never thought was possible and their nervous system goes like that and just like whoop, you know all of a sudden there's a whole new possibility in their being and everyone else just saw that mm. and mm. it engages mm. a thing that i call a permission spiral where you have this longing that you haven't even let yourself think. And then all of a sudden you see this and it comes right into clear view that if you're asked to come into the center of the circle, this is what you're going to talk about. And, and when you have a month, you have a lot of time for cycles at that. And a lot of the, a lot of the work is about repetition and because you're learning tools, it's like learning how to ride a bike. Um, And so you're learning to say the difficult thing that's true for you 
and let it have consequences and actually see that all these ways that you were holding aspects of yourself in for the sake of connection actually guaranteed disconnection. And by letting them out is the first chance you have to actually be met as you are. And then people relax like they've never felt before because they realize actually who they are is fine. And that's like so much of the root of these things is a sense of unworthiness, unlovability, but they're, they're predicting that and censoring those aspects instead of finding out if it's true. Mm. And just like we talked about with the skillfulness before, those things might've been true for you when you were a kid, the way you had to hold these things back. But is it skillful to actually do that as an adult anymore? It's, it's a code that worked really well before, but it's not necessarily relevant. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. I, uh, I'm aware that you have to move soon. And uh, I wish that weren't true because I want to keep talking to you about this. And I bet I, I have a feeling that a lot of people who start to hear about this go like, can I come? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I wouldn't be surprised that like you're you're evoking something that at its best expression is like a way for us to be different as a culture, a way for us to be more human and humane as a culture. And so absent in so many corners of, of at least American society where, where you and I both live. And so thank you for speaking to it so beautifully and for creating it. And I hope, uh, I hope year two deepens and, and enriches and unfolds even more of the insight about how to create this space in a way that creates the kind of outcomes that you were describing earlier, which are amazing. Mm. Yeah, thanks so much, Andy. It's good to talk about it and get all those reflections. Appreciate yeah. it. So if someone's hearing this in 2023, uh, uh, April 2023, May 2023, whatever, and they want to check it out, where should they go check it out? It's sleepawake.camp. It's a pun off of sleepaway camp, which people go to in the summer. So sleepawake.camp, and you can get the application from that. And especially you can set up a short call with me or Kat uh, to learn more about it. Amazing. All right. Thank you, Jeff. I'm wishing you, I can't wait. Maybe next time will be me, you and Kat together after round two to hear how that went. So I was thinking about the same thing. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Andy. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.